the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. to the podcast. Hello, Justin. Hey, Lindsay. What are we doing this week? Today we're doing Deliverance. Man, 1972. Yeah. It's Is it the oldest movie we've done? Yeah, I believe it is. I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, yeah. 74. 74. So, yeah. But for this being 1972, man, this movie looks does not look dated. No, not at all. This, if anything, this movie, I think, because it's free of any sort of digital effects or anything early digital effects or yeah gimmickry it really holds up this is a lean movie i, I really that's a good and, word and to was, describe uh, it and this was your uh your suggestion which it's a movie that didn't really pop in my mind but as soon as you mm-hmm. threw it out there with a couple of the titles it just kept kind of sinking in my head like man this is it's a really great film all around i love adventure i love a good adventure movie i'm and a lot of those stem out of the 70s and 80s. And uh, I think with this one, well, one, uh, the cast is so solid. The story is simple. Who doesn't love a good, what would you do if this terrible thing happened? Like, how would you behave? Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. it's an a age-old type of story. But I think one thing with Deliverance that's always kind of bothered me is that it's really, if you bring up Deliverance, people think of the infamous squeal like a pig rape scene, which is very important to the story, um, you know, is the catalyst that sets everything in motion. But um, it's always, I don't know, it's always just kind of irked me a little bit. It sort of almost like casts a, a shadow over the film where it's like, mm-hmm. it's it's that scene is so notorious. Like people, yeah, you can. it's easy to forget how, great this film is like and how great the performances are and the story and um and the craft yeah that's that's here so um i think one of the things we'll hopefully in this episode we'll kind of kind of debunk some of that kind of i mean we're definitely we'll talk about that scene and but you know we really want to talk about other aspects of this movie yeah that, that really uh make this a worthwhile watch even yeah. if you feel uh a little apprehensive about revisiting uh, that that particular scene. And with with that infamous rape scene, we're going to also talk about it um, from a few different angles than than just what's on the surface, too, because yeah. it's a it's kind of interesting to think about that scene a little bit deeper than what I think people yeah, normally do. Rewatching the movie, it, it it hit me right away. Like, yeah, yeah there's a lot here that. To, yeah. To, to un yeah to unravel that we could that we could discuss. So of course we'll talk about that. We'll talk about themes, the cast. Uh, it's pretty important. Uh, John Borman, who's the director, and James Dickey, who wrote the novel Deliverance and the screenplay yeah. as well. And his only screenplay, his only novel. Yeah, quirky and, guy that yeah. James Dickey. And uh, this was one of those uh, kind of troubled productions. There's a lot of difficulty in in danger in filming this movie and all shot on location, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, it, 
wasn't unorthodox for the 70s, but to travel so far away from Los Angeles was a little against the grain, I guess you would say. Yeah, definitely not typical. And it, and digital special effects weren't a thing then, so they had to make a lot of things work. And there there are some really good uh, kind of effects that happen. I'm thinking specifically of uh, Ronnie Cox's arm. We'll get we'll yeah, get we'll, we'll get, get there. Right, yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, and certainly talk about the cast. Yeah, and this being a first film for two of the actors, and then certainly I would say one of the most memorable roles that Burt Reynolds has done in his career. And I think he, at least until very late into his career, was saying that this is the best film he's ever done. Yeah, and gave him some some clout. So yeah, a lot, lot, lot to unpack, a lot to talk about with Deliverance. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. After our discussion, we'll do our picks of the week. Uh, this week, I went with John Borman's feature that he did directly after Deliverance. Uh, two years later, the just <laughs> I can't wait to hear wacky, about it. <laughs> wacky, wacky movie, Zardoz. And what a name! Yeah, God, I can't wait. I can't wait to see this. Thank and you I, for letting I'll, me borrow uh, that. I'll explain the name in my review. And what was your pick of the week? Um, mine was a uh, Burt Reynolds vehicle, a little musical comedy called The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Such a name. I, I, I mean, even when I was younger, I remember that title. Yeah. Just like at the video store. Yeah. It's funny that that title made it. Mm-hmm. There was some, I, I think some uh, TV, when it, when it aired on TV, maybe once a long time ago, I can't remember, but at one point or another, it was called The Best Little Cat House in Texas. Hmm. Yeah, that just doesn't have the same. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. No. Well, we'll uh, as always round out things with our Murray moments, but before we get into our first clip from this film, can you just give us a brief rundown of what uh, what we're in for? What's this movie about? All right. So the story of Deliverance is four friends go on, decide to go on this canoeing trip down the uh, Calhilawassee, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, the Calhilawassee River before it is destroyed and dammed up and turned into a lake. Uh, It's considered like one of the most dangerous rivers in the country and they're setting out to kind of conquer it before it doesn't exist anymore. So they set out on this trip and run into some trouble when they meet up with some folks that live in the area. And then it becomes not only about the interaction that happens with those guys, but also surviving the rest of the way down the river. Very much a movie about survival. Yeah. And uh, self-preservation. Yeah. It's well, very primal. Yeah. This movie. We'll, uh, we'll go to a clip from Deliverance and we'll come back and start talking about it. You take this man down out of the mountains and turn him over to the sheriff, there's going to be a trial, all right. A trial by jury. So what? We killed him, Andrew. Shot him in the back. A mountain man. A cracker. It gives us something to consider. All right. Consider it. We're listening. Shit, all these people are related. But goddamned if I want to come back up here and stand trial with this man's aunt and his uncle, maybe his mom and his daddy sitting in the jury box. What do you think, Bobby? 
How about you, Ed? I don't know. Uh, I really don't know. Hey, listen, Lewis. I don't know what you got in mind. But if you try to conceal this body, you're setting yourself up for a murder charge. Now, that much law, I do know. This ain't one of your fucking games. You killed somebody. There he is. I see him, Drew. That's right, I killed somebody. But you're wrong if you don't see this as a game. Lewis. Are you listening, Ed? Damn it, we can get out of this thing without any questions asked. We get connected up with that body and the law. This thing's gonna be hanging over us the rest of our lives. We gotta get rid of that guy. Just how are you gonna do that, Lewis? Where? Anywhere. Everywhere. So just right out of the gate, let's just say the, the title of this movie alone mm-hmm. was very 70s, it's vague. Um, very vague deliverance. You know, in the 80s, they've just had so many movies where it was just like whatever the main thing of the movie is. Predator. Right. You know, or <laughs> E.T., you know, it's like yeah. Conan, you know, like yeah. we're going to that's what the title is going to be. But the 70s had a lot of, <laughs> like, you know, five easy pieces, like just strange, you know, yeah. apocalypse, not like just things that didn't really clue you into if you saw the title like what is this movie about yeah. so i think that's a good place to start because there is that, but i do think it's a good title and i think like yeah it does it makes sense yeah and i think that this movie is very thematic yeah um it's not it's a very straightforward simple story but there are uh, a lot of you know themes and idealisms that i think are pretty strongly stated in the movie i mean even just from the opening title sequence with the you know, the crossover uh, voices of the discussion of the four characters who are going to yeah, go the, out to conquer this river, you know, like before it becomes a lake, like they're leaving their Atlanta city homes and going to the the middle, no rural, rural country to battle this river. To, in essence, like by going to the wilderness to conquer this river, they're being delivered from their normal everyday you know, run-of-the-mill just kind of grind. In doing that, in disappearing and going back to this kind of, like, primal instinct, they also are become very vulnerable. Yeah, from the get-go, this very much was, like, one of the, I think, one of the earliest movies, at least that I can remember. I mean, certainly 80s, 90s onward, there were movies about people who live in the suburbs and they're very bored they've become so comfortable in life but this was early enough on to where that wasn't like such an idealism in america i think you know we were you know it was very much up until post world war ii the main story you always read about is like people were scrapping for survival you know it was about feeding your kids and the idea of like we're gonna go on a canoe trip or we're gonna take a vacation that just wasn't something that normal people did that wasn't like part of everyday life it was like we're gonna stop we did we get it we got to get away from our normal comfortable lives mm-hmm. of like you know going to the grocery store and mowing our lawns that just didn't you know exist it was all about like making sure like you got through the day you know even yeah you know in post great depression but you know this was enough this was i think was enough of uh, of the generation that's like 20 years removed from 
World War II and the baby boomers, you know, building families, Mm -hmm. living comfortably and technology, all these comforts in your home, like dishwashers. And I think this was like one of those first movies that said, showed that sort of like need to like challenge get doing something that most people would avoid and I think it's funny because they go to a place where people are living who don't have any of the yeah have never the, seen any of the luxuries the trappings that they the yeah, nice niceties yeah. that they have and and yeah. to them trying to go out on a dangerous river seems like about the stupidest thing that you can do yeah you know though like with with deliverance I've known this movie since I I was really young but I also grew up in rural Missouri like southern Missouri and my dad you know would go to on trips to Canada for like weeks at a time and you know probably didn't have anything like deliverance happen to him but was kind of out in the middle of nowhere I'm also not saying that my dad is like the Burt Reynolds character but maybe a little bit but if you're that type of person that still has something within you that you know wanting to kind of remember or just get away from stuff you still have some sense of like not being completely absorbed by this mold that you're supposed to fit into this movie is a really great example of that and even the part where Burt Reynolds is kind of not confronting John Voight's character who's John Voight's like the quintessential city boy type of thing and he while he's enjoying this time on the river he's still that kind of city boy and Burt Reynolds is kind of saying you know why do you come out here with me on the on these adventures what is it you know you gotta what what is it about it got a nice wife got a job you know but why you keep coming out here with me kind of saying there's something within you that's yeah. like me that wants to leave all that behind for a second well and I and I love the I really love the way the aggressiveness of Burt Reynolds' character really shows the where the other characters are coming from. And you get that early on in the movie where Burt Reynolds, this is what he lives for. The other guys, this is like more of an adventure, more like, um, you know, we're going to beat this river. And Burt Reynolds is more like, you can't beat the river. Like, we're out here like, this is like a survivalist yeah. thing. You need to think like a survivalist. It should be said too, real quickly. I know I already said it's it's for friends, but just to give you a quick setup, Burt Reynolds. We kind of get the idea that Burt Reynolds is like the star and like the main person of this story. Um, he's very much the what looks like the the leader of the pack, like the man's man, the outdoorsy guy. But who we kind of come to find out is the who becomes the leader is the John Voight character, who is Ed. And he's the city boy, kind of the, I don't want to say yes man, but he he's kind of Burt Reynolds' like little sidekick, kind of. Then we also have Ned Beatty, who plays Bobby. He's, what would you say about him? He's just very much kind of like, he probably got beat up in high school a lot. He's just kind of, he talks a big game. But it's probably because he's very insecure as a man. Yeah, he's he's just kind of like kind of a goofy guy. Kind of a goof goofball. Yeah, he's just kind of a goofball. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, rounding out is Ronnie Cox, who's Drew. Ronnie Cox, such a sweetheart in this movie. He's like he's like the the straightforward, good, just a good-hearted man that's along for uh, along for this trip. And this is not to say that these characters are like so one dimensional. No, Every, everyone has their. Just, everyone has. That's just to give you the setup. Give you setup. Everybody like, has their moment where they shine, and they're yeah. you know there's depth. They're not just this one 
you know. I mean, this movie is basically these four yeah. guys. So yeah. they they have there's significance to all of their characters. But just to give you just a quick little little snippet on who they are, I think it very much is interesting because you get this early. You know, this is a early. You know, this movie is forty seven years old, but. That's crazy. This sort of masculinity, the idea of what what a man's supposed to be, or toxic masculinity that you hear about, that you know that people write articles about now, forty seven years ago. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Burt Reynolds was like that yeah. guy who's like pushing these guys to the point where they're not even having a good time. I mean, like the next morning, Ned Beatty's just like, I don't want to ride in a canoe with him. He's like <laughs> yelling at me, and I don't like being yelled at. And they're, you know, and Burt Reynolds is kind of pushing them like, you guys aren't men. You know, you're just a bunch of wimps out here and you're going to get yourself hurt but there's no there's no sh- shaming or anything like that that Burt Reynolds is doing but he's definitely pushing he, their buttons yeah and it, but it's in a way i think and i like the way that it's portrayed because it isn't so straightforward mm-hmm. you know and he does but he does have this sort of like weird resentment toward them and even when they're all yeah. enjoying like playing music Ronnie Cox is playing the guitar and Ned Beatty's passing around the whiskey and he goes over to hand the whiskey to Burt Reynolds Burt Reynolds kind of like turns his head to the side but i find it interesting he doesn't drink i find it very interesting he's not a non-drinker it, it, and also like none of these guys are smoking cigarettes you know mm-hmm. this is a very like 70s were very much like drinking smoking 60s he's got a very he's got a pipe, pipe. <laughs> yeah he's got the pipe you know but it is uh it is interesting to me it's like you, you're able to like sort of identify with the characters and, and much like the way stand by me did you know we talked about it is you know very you, you, much like that you, you know you've got the the strong character the person that's like the voice of reason ned Beatty's like the Vern character you know like uh by their first opening conversation you get the sense of like where they fall in this structure because it's four guys that have to tackle something and this where, where they're at it's like fight for survival it's like survival of the fittest and so it's like you see where they're stacking up and how they look at each other, Who's, who can help us the most type. And I think also by having characters like this, you can very easily identify with one, if not all of them, or see some part of yourself in them as well. I think that's kind of how it was for James Dickey, the writer, yeah. too. And I think like the themes, you know, like going into themes like, very much like a man versus himself, man versus nature, and this sort of idea of like the only thing stronger than man is like nature, and and this also idea of um, you're at the mercy of nature. Yeah, and I think too, like like we said, you know, this this theme of like fight for, for fight for survival. Um, this very much is like I think like a survivalist movie. I think that's why we'll get into like the infamous rape scene and the next discussion but i think ultimately what that scene uh yeah, really shit you know it's about male male dominance but also but, what happens but i think what that scene has really done that a disservice this movie is really shown with a great survivalist like adventure film this is oh yeah you know, i think that that scene sort of overshadows like how much this movie is about these guys working as a team, even through the adversity of like trying to cover up their crime of murder and, and having this like huge discussion of after the they kill the rapist, you know, each person has their own take on what they should do. Ronnie Cox being like strongly against them, like covering up, you know, this crime. So before we go to the next clip, I wanted to just briefly talk about James Dickey because he's the reason why this whole movie got going. And James Dickey was very much like the Southern, Southern man, 
uh, was a poet, but also he had this like strange balance of like, you know, he's, he's this like poet, but then he's like this sort of like gruff, yeah. like a uh, good old boy. You know, this was his only novel that he had written. He adapted it because I, I think, I think it's perfect. I mean, I think a lot of times when a book comes out that, you know, they get Hollywood writers to mm-hmm. make this, the movie more Hollywood. And I thought that it was such a perfect thing to not do that to this movie because this movie does not feel Hollywoodized. No. Um, this feels very raw and authentic. And I think it was a perfect move to bring the guy who wrote the novel to adapt the screenplay. I know that John Borman made some suggestions that they did mm-hmm. use because in the novel, it opens with them in their homes in Atlanta and it kind of shows how they have these sort of softer lives, like that they're not these rugged men. They, you know, live in homes and they have jobs in the city and spouses and whatnot. And John Borman wanted to cut that from the movie. He wanted to just do that quick voiceover and then cut because it it's all about them being out here. And I get why and, that works in a novel, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Because I think you get in the movie, there's enough information yeah. that we don't need to see them from this, that Far. It's a really boring way to start yeah. the, a movie like this. <laughs> um, and But for the most part, though, the movie, from what I've read, is pretty close to the novel. But they did have James Dickey on location for a good first like portion. First, and then yeah. he, I think, like sort of almost immediately started getting on the actor's nerves. and <laughs> He was asked he, to leave. <laughs> he was Yeah, he was asked to leave and didn't really get along. But they had actually already cast him as the sheriff. And so... Just a fun fact, if you don't know the sheriff at the end of the movie is the writer, James Dickey. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did come back to do that part, but they had him, asked him to leave the... Well, he, he kept he kept referring to the actors by their character names, and Burt Reynolds did not take kindly yeah. to that. And he was very overbearing. He was kind of getting in the way of rehearsals, what, yeah, it, and, what and, it sounded like. And sounded like he was kind of like a fibber, like he had... <laughs> Kind yeah. of secretly told everybody, the cast and crew, that everything that happened in the book happened yeah, to him. Everything happened in this yeah, book. Yeah, but then uh, J- John Borman said that as soon as they got out, because John Borman said he was a fairly skilled canoeer, like he he was familiar with canoeing, and he said mm-hmm. he, as soon as he got out in the river with James Dickey, it was apparent to John Borman that James Dickey had like spent zero time in a canoe and did not know how to navigate a river. But he did say that he had more respect for him after that because. John Borman thought who could write something so authentic and real, not having experienced mm-hmm. any of this, was was a much more skilled writer. And so he kind of liked that about him, even though it annoyed him that he was going around telling yeah. all these tall tales on, on, on set. James Dickey's kid even said that his dad liked making, he liked making people think things about him that maybe had a kernel of truth but he said he liked making up stories he sounded like he'd be a pretty rough person to spend an afternoon with yes you know not somebody you'd want to be in like a, a car ride Just with a, or anything. i think gruff is is the best yeah. way to put it yeah. the the um what did he say the interaction with burt reynolds at the premiere of deliverance is is pretty funny to oh, me yeah, and it was like, indicator of of what kind of a guy he was, was. like an interviewer asked uh or they, I guess, like word got around that James Dickey and particularly Burt Reynolds yeah. did not get along. And some interview at the premiere asked, asked them it, about that when they're yeah, standing it, together. Yeah, yes, Burt Reynolds. Like, uh, so uh, we heard you guys <laughs> didn't get along in a set. You know, what do you think of James Dickey? He's like, I think he's one of America's, you know, best uh, poets. <laughs> and then the interviewer said, What do you think about that, James Dickey? And what was it? What was his he response? He said something like, I'm not very sure how many poets. Mr. Reynolds has read before. 
you know, he sounded like he was a gruff guy, but nonetheless, I think he did a great job of like adapting his own novel. You know, yeah, there's so many movies that you can hear like, oh, the you got to read the book. The movie adaptation is yeah. terrible. And it's because they did all these things and cut everything to make it more of like an easily accessible Hollywood film. And I think this movie certainly wasn't going for something that was like easily accessible. And we'll talk more of that. Uh, when we come back from the second clip, we'll talk about the behind the scenes because this was a very low budget film and there was a lot of stuff that happened that they kind of had to make concessions so they can make this movie happen, um, which I think is why it feels very non-Hollywood. And then we'll also talk about the cast briefly and the notorious rape scene. So go to the second clip, come back, we'll talk about that. Before you go, buddy, let me ask you something. How come y'all really end up with full life jackets? Didn't we have an extra one? No. Drew wasn't wearing his. Well, how come he... he wasn't wearing it? I don't know. Don't ever do nothing like this again. Don't come back up here. You don't have to worry about that, Sheriff. I'd kind of like to see this town die peaceful. I hope Deputy Queen finds his brother-in-law. Oh, he'll come in drunk, probably. So you talked a, a little bit about the characters of Deliverance, but I um, wanted to briefly talk about the actors that portrayed those characters. Because yeah. um, there's some interesting tidbits there, those actors being Burt Reynolds, uh, Ned Beatty, John Voight, and um, Ronnie Cox. Mm-hmm. And this was uh, the first film feature debut of Ned Beatty and Ronnie Cox, um, both turning in, I think, really you know, subtle performances in uh, like we said before, each actor having their moment to shine in this movie, their characters being pushed to, to their limits, you know, and having that moment where they have to deal with the horrible things that are going on so that they can kind of not only survive the incident, but also live with themselves. Yeah, they're so incredible. They both have very emotional moments in this movie. And yeah, their their performances for this being their first movie, it's pretty astonishing. John Borman said that, which I think is a great scene um, at the very end where John Voight breaks down after, you know, they get back and they're eating dinner and they're back in civilization. And um, John Voight kind of breaks down at the kindness of, of the strangers. And Ned Beatty sort of like breaks the tension because Ned Beatty's already dealt with humiliation. So yeah. he doesn't want John, you know, there's that moment. There's almost like a look of like, it's humiliating to cry in front of somebody. So John Borman said that Ned Beatty ad-libbed the line, this is some good corn, but it was like a perfect, and the look on his face, the way yeah. his acting in that is like perfect, and it's it really breaks, you can, you really feel like a tension's been broken, and it feels very close to real life. He really does. That, that scene in particular, it feels so real, and also playing into the fact that Ned Beatty's character is, he says after after he's raped earlier in the movie, saying... I just want to put this behind us. I just don't want this getting around. Like he wants to move away from this. He wants to forget it ever happened. 
And yeah, that that's quite an emotional scene, especially for John Voight. Yeah, and him saying, you I mean, know, for both not, of them, really. I, you know, he's saying to John Voight after they've kind of gotten away with murder, like it's I probably won't be seeing you for for a good while. Yeah, you know, which Ned both, which Ned is Beatty's sort of like I'm gonna go off and pretend that I never knew any of you guys and that none yeah, of this ever happened. But it's also saying. Hi, I'm really affected by what's happened. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but by completely trying to not deal with it. And I think Ronnie Cox is great because Ronnie Cox, I think, is um, immediately captivating with the dueling banjo scene, which is you know the other I infamous think, scene. You know, infamous scene. Um, but also being that you know probably the most liberal of the bunch, mm-hmm. the one that has the most, I think, like ethical hold of like what's right and what's wrong and like what justice is and peacemaker yeah peacemaker and kind of really gives like a riveting and raw declaration there after the the murder of the rapist of you know we we should go to the police and this is you know you know and kind of letting each character know like we have to live with this this isn't like this like one and done kind of thing like this is going to be like we're going to take this with us for like we're always going to think about this do you justin at all get teary-eyed at any moment in this movie because it happens a, f- a few times for me and it's because it's so emotional and one of those scenes is is after the um well the the build-up during the rape scene is is really awful and humiliating but after after that and ronnie cox is like what are you doing think about what's going to happen like we can't we can't just pretend like this didn't happen and bury this guy i I like get emotionally affected by that scene. Yeah, this isn't this isn't necessarily a real emotional f- movie for me really? personally, okay. but I mean I do there are two particular scenes I mean that I I feel like the most most emotionally connected to are them when they're sort of like right before their uh, Ronnie Cox gets killed and they've now decided, you know, they're not going to take his body back, you know, he's their friend, they're going to tie stones around him and sink him in the river because they just want to wrap up every loose end that has to you know so they can save themselves and you know his arms kind of like broken and hooked over his head and you know they're they're like talking about his life and basically doing these sort of like burial ritual that you would do except for they're about to like sink them in the river and that's really it's real that that scene to me kind of gets me and then also the john voight kind of breaking down scene where they're at the uh dinner table yeah toward the end there that's the other one for me too little fun fact quick about uh ronnie cox and that broken arm is that ronnie cox the actor was double jointed in his shoulder so that could have been a fake arm or maybe nowadays it would have been some cgi move that was actually ronnie cox's arm it was a fun little trick he could do yeah and and this is a movie too where it's like you kind of forget how really brutal like bone breaks are and yeah. there's like two you know that his broken arm kind of gangly it's over gnarly. his neck and then it's really gnarly and then the looking. broken protruding bone in Burt Reynolds leg and <laughs> so just gross. him like hitting it against the rocks just it's there there's pretty visceral also uh, with all of these actors there is only one scene where there was a stuntman used and it was when when both canoes uh, right after uh, the rape murder awful terrible scene and Ronnie Cox, it's kind of ambiguous, but he goes overboard in one of the canoes and then just kind of all hell breaks loose. 
and all the guys get thrown from their canoes. Um, in that scene, which is pretty intense, um, there's only one stuntman used for one shot for John Voight, but otherwise everybody... I mean, because how how else are you going to... You can't reshoot something like this that's happening in a in a wild real river yeah. you, you it's got to be the actors yeah and that and that uh, sort of like parlay into how dangerous of a film shoot this was mm-hmm. kind of like these four actors got the movie based on the fact that they would do the movie do their own stunts without being insured and yeah. there's even like a reference to like no insurance that Burt Reynolds jokes yeah. about earlier yeah. in the movie and Burt Reynolds and John Voight were you know, well-known actors at this point too, not like Ronnie Cox and and Ned Beatty who were theater actors, but still they, you know, they had careers and they were kind of playing. John Voight was coming off of a best picture. Midnight Midnight Cowboy. Cowboy, Yeah. Yeah. Like they, they had something to lose if they got injured in this, but the, the stunt work is really impressive. It's a very, it's a very dangerous river. Like I, I read that like multiple people after the success of the movie had went to the river and drowned trying to canoe the river. Yeah. And people have asked John Borman about, do you feel guilty or strange about that? And he said, I don't know that I could make it look any more dangerous in the movie. Yeah. But John, but uh, John Borman did say that before the actors did it, he canoed the river himself because he didn't want them to do anything dangerous that he wouldn't do himself. But he said that those scenes were a lot of the intense scenes were there in the rapids. It was just, John Borman, the cinematographer, and like I think one camera assistant, because yeah. they couldn't, uh, they just could, it was too dangerous to get a crew down in there, and there wasn't enough enough room. But he he did do um, a lot of stuff in one shot, but he did do some coverage. And again, like it's pretty amazing when you watch the movie, the craft of it, and the stunts that knowing that those are all the same actors and John Voight climbing up on that cliff is like insane you know and i mean granted they they you know they cheat some of it the way they shoot it but it's it's pretty intense still though yeah so yeah there there is a a cliff climbing scene and this is when after the wreck burt reynolds leg is broken and ronnie cox we're assuming has drowned and uh, they think that one of the mountain men that attacked them is kind of like up on this cliff kind of hunting them so John Voight has to scale this cliff and man I just can't believe I mean I know that he's like strapped in and has a harness and yeah. you know for all intents and purposes like he he is safe if he if he falls but still he climbed that thing by himself and they did it in sections of course filming it is still a movie but man but yeah, it's, I mean, it's really cool. Uh, and, and John Borman said like the actors were dedicated, like nobody backed down from any challenge. Like, and he, he kind of told them this is going to be rough. This, and he, he even said that when he was picking the crew and the, the cinematographer, like he specifically chose people that, you know, had a history of like working on mm-hmm. not, you know, rough conditions because he knew that once they all got out there, he didn't want people to start getting complaining and freaking out he also said that there were a few times where the actors didn't want to talk to him yeah yeah, i think john (laughs) Voigt. yeah i think the most uh quotable line from john borman was that john Voigt said uh you you saved me saved me you saved my career by putting in this movie but then you tried to kill me in the river yeah um, and so just a, like a quick thing, speaking to John Borman, you know, he was, had already kind of started established his career. He had hit with Point Blank with Lee Marvin and 
But this movie was very low budget. This was like $2 million. He kind of got a deal on Burt Reynolds and John Boyd because they hadn't really had like a hit, you know, hit hit or they weren't hot at the moment. He was a very crafty director. I think like certainly after Deliverance, he was a more bankable director. So he was able to get movies with a little bit bigger budgets. But this was very much a low budget film and he shot it like a low budget film. But one thing that he said that I thought was pretty interesting on his style of directing was is that he would do very low shooting ratios. And if you're unfamiliar, shooting ratio is basically how many takes per scene that they're going to do. So if if a director does like 15 takes or 12 takes, you know, at the end of the shoot, they sort of average like 10 takes per one scene was like 10 to one ratio. Yeah. Well, he said his average was around three to one. So he usually, you know, one out of every three takes is the take that would end up in the movie. But he said at one point in time at the studio, he had the lowest shooting ratio of any director and he said the reason he specifically did it is because he wanted actors to know no matter what you know he's like if you do a bunch of take take after take the actors lose momentum and they get a little bit soft because they're not on their toes because they think well why do I want to give it my all we're going to do 15 takes yeah. I don't want to give it everything and then have like these next five takes not even make it into the film so when they were shooting with him they knew like there's you know a pretty good chance we're going to do one to three takes and one of these, you know, so you got to bring it every single time because we're going to move on. And um, he said that was a way to kind of keep the actors on their toes, to keep the momentum up. And I just think that's a very, like, smart and direct, it's like such a director thing to do, like a very, you know, concise way to, like, approach how to motivate an actor and how to say, you yeah. know, let's not kill it. And, you know, and there's directors who like Stanley Kubrick who are like, a hundred takes of someone walking through a door or something or just doing, you know, take after take. And you, I do find that in Stanley Kubrick films, some of the acting can be a little bit robotic and, and kind of cold. Whereas like a movie, this very much every moment that an actor's on screen, they seem like out of breath or they're yeah. it's just like a very frantic, fast paced acting style that I think, you know, is due to John Borman's style of, of saying, you know, like bring it every single take, like, there's only going to be a few takes and this is it, you know, so make it count. And while that is a really economical and smart way to, to, to shoot a movie, at least I feel like it is. It's also for a movie like this, it's, it feels necessary. Yeah. And, and it is, and it is definitely something that's more conventional for like low budget filmmaking. Of course, like you said, you know, less film you're shooting, less time of the day that's taking to do one scene. But um, I do like his approach of, you know, th- this, you know, sort of do like it right. tricking the actors <laughs> and, you know, like getting the actors pumped up. We both know you can do this. All yeah. right. Just focus and let's get it done and move on. So I didn't want to, you know, open the discussion of deliverance on the notorious rape scene, but it seems appropriate. We'll just end the discussion <laughs> on it. Uh, the final thing you hear about deliverance. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, yeah. Well, because it is, you know, it is what people remember about this movie. And like we were saying before, there there is so much more to this movie than the scene. But the scene is important for a, a lot of reasons. I, I think the biggest thing to kind of right away say is that it's something that sadly has to be said in, in, today, in today's, you know, even today, like 47 years later, that rape is rape. Yeah. And that this has always been kind of said as like the male rape movie. Yeah. You know, as if it's, if there's a huge there's a difference, difference, you know, and, and, and how like this movie uh, scares guys off so much, like, oh, I can't watch this one, you know, but so many movies of the 70s, 80s, you know, depicted 
the rape of women and a lot of those movies are almost celebrated for their yeah their violence and brutality namely clockwork orange or last house on the left and those movies like people yeah, cheer sometimes yeah yeah you know? and, and also you know this is a another film where you know the the rapist is immediately killed like justice is immediately done which right? when does that ever happen when when a woman is raped in a yeah. movie hardly ever i mean yeah. out of the three billion times that women are raped in movies yeah. that maybe happens once or twice and you know and not to pick on a movie like last Us and left and i'm you know it, which was Wes Craven's Wes Craven's first film and you know and I'm you know the movies we've done on this podcast we're fans of the horror yeah, genre we love horror movies. I love a lot of exploitation films boobs and blood you know but it's a horror but I horror do thing. you know and again I'm not picking on Last House on the Left but Last House on the Left is is not the most well-made film it's not the most well-crafted film it's not the most well-acted movie but it's a movie that people watch because what it is notorious for and what it's celebrated for is its brutality mm-hmm. and it to me the rape scene in last house and left is very difficult to watch and much worse than the rape scene in deliverance but deliverance a movie that's really all well, rape is bad yeah. but brutality wise but deliverance is a movie that's super well crafted really well acted uh really well written is difficult to watch the entire movie because of this one scene <laughs> it seems, and because it's a guy getting raped and not a female. I was going to say that's the nut of it, but maybe that's a bad euphemism there. <laughs> it took me a second. Um, you know, this rape that happens is kind of the catalyst for everything that, that happens in the movie and kind of going off what you're saying with Last House on the Left, like one of the hardest movies for me to watch, but I but I actually like it as a movie. We haven't really talked about this before, but I Spit on Your Grave, like that's that's a pretty legendary film, but like that movie is about I mean it's there's there's a lot of raping in that movie. Compared to Deliverance, there are just so many more brutal movies that have depicted a rape scene and I can't help but like marvel at the double standard of it being so all this it's just such an awful scene in deliverance and it just kind of like one guy said to john borman i went to see deliverance and about halfway through and the rapes about like 45 minutes in uh, which is about halfway um and about halfway in i walked out and i've never been back to the cinema since like really is it that dramatic and, I, and I'm sure that guy's watched, never walked out of many movies where <laughs> women had been raped. Yeah, right? Yeah. It's almost just such a, a thing that is uh, not typical, but we're not exactly, even now, we're, we're not shocked by a rape of a woman in a movie if, you know, if it fits into the story for, for yeah. whatever reason. It's not shocking. And... I think too, and I I'm very thankful to the actors of Deliverance that they they say that anytime that the scenes talked about, they always make it a point to say that women got this before men did. Yes, this is the rape of a man in this movie, but I guess the point is is that no matter if you're male female, non-binary, whoever, a human, just a human, recognizing that that rape is rape and that it doesn't make this movie any worse or should put uh, some dark cloud over it because of that more than any other movie that also has rape in it. I do think that James Dickey had to be aware of that, how it would affect the male psyche and because how much of this movie is about 
being a man and masculinity and, and being a dominant figure and then this yeah. demasculating scene, this humiliating scene, it is effective. And you know what I mean? Clearly worked because of the, you yeah. know, of how many <laughs> men are, have so a reaction. This is like a, a sort of a revered movie for them to, to have to sit through. Um, you know, so I think that, you know, he was, he was definitely tapping into something, you know, he, he knew what he was doing or he knew the effect that it would have. Yeah, exactly. And also along with that too, like the metaphors in this movie are not heavily masked really at all, but the idea of, of nature being raped and because like the, you know, this movie starts out, we're, we're told in like the first couple seconds that the reason that they're going canoeing is because this river is going to be obliterated and in essence, I would assume too that the the town, the tiny little shanty town that the guys roll into, that like all of this is gonna. Well, because we we can even see they're moving, like they're moving the church, they're moving, yeah. they're like moving the town, yeah. And then there's the people of all at the end. You see that family; it's packed up, and they have all their belongings yeah. in the truck. So this idea of man raping land is kind of all all throughout and all mixed into this, and a it's not a veiled metaphor at all. Yeah. So rape kind of serves as uh, a few different purposes in this movie and is really the catalyst for this. Like there might be that giant story over this, this giant metaphor, but the actual rape of Ned Beatty's character is the catalyst for everything. All the decisions that these guys are going to make moving forward and everything that happens in this movie is because of what happened in that moment and how they chose to deal with it. Again, I, you know, I, I think if one thing that we can pull from this kind of this discussion on the rape in the movie is if that's one thing that's apprehended you from, from watching a movie or revisiting it, but you've been able to sit through a multitude of films with no problem where women are being raped, you know, it's like kind of like think about that. <laughs> Just and then put it in perspective. Don't, don't miss, yeah, put it in perspective and then don't miss out on a, a really like brilliantly made movie because, you know, kind of going back to the double standard that you mentioned. And also let it serve as a purpose to think about something from a different point of view. Yeah. And it's uh, and it was something that really like, immediately hit me. Like as soon as we were like, we're going to talk about this movie. It's like, Oh, like, uh, <laughs> you talk about that because well, as soon as I, you know, I even mentioned the people like we're doing deliverance, you know, it's like every single person yeah, brings it up immediately. Yeah. I I asked a guy I work with if he'd seen Deliverance and he was like, yeah, that's a great friggin' movie. I love it. And I was like, what do you love about it? And this guy's, you know, former military, like he's, he's man's man. And he's like, man, um, it's a great outdoors movie. It's an adventure movie. It's really, yeah, it's just really good. I mean, I'm not really, I don't really like that rape scene, but I mean, like you can't help but bring it up. Yeah, but, and and by no means are we saying that <laughs> it's not an awful, terrible scene because yeah, it, it's yeah. an absolutely brutal scene to watch. We're just saying I'm com- not saying it's an easy watch. We're just saying comparatively. Yeah, and with, that it's the fact that it's a man. Yeah, that's that's the yeah. problem. Is what we're saying. It's we're none- saying if that would if it was four women, <laughs> and yeah. if this movie was just four women on a camping trip, and one of them was raped, it, most people they'd just never be like, man, that rape scene. I couldn't get past it. Yeah. Yeah. Like if somebody got raped in the descent, they wouldn't be talking about no, that rape scene no, at all. No. Well, let's uh let's stop talking about rape. Yeah. Let's move on to our picks of the week. Yeah, Justin, I cannot wait to hear about Zardoz. I should have seen this movie in life, 
but I, yeah, it was not familiar to me. You sent me the trailer for it, and I was hooked. Please tell us about it. I'm gonna try my best. It's, this could be <laughs> you can sum it up. This could be a little difficult, but I'm gonna I'm gonna give it I give it my best shot here. After uh, the success of Deliverance, John Borman kind of had his pick of some high profile projects, and so he was set to direct a sort of like big budget adaptation of the Lord of the Rings and Warner Brothers I don't know if it was like budgetary reasons or whatever but that kind of fell through Um, but John Borman was then sort of stuck on this idea of doing a movie that sort of took place in like different worlds and was kind of like this like magical intertwined story like science fiction fantasy and because he had had such a success with deliverance the studio was sort of like if if it's low budget you can kind of do whatever you want so he wrote produced and directed Zardos which is uh it's kind of a movie it's like off the rails this is one that I saw in like a clip reel the fact that this is a back-to-back follow-up to deliverance is almost it's just kind of insane to me because zardos is so out there but anyway best that i can give a short description of what this movie is about uh it takes place in far far distant future of 2293 and at this point the, the world is basically uh split into two sections there's the eternals who live in like a lush area called the vortex and they are immortal like they they're gonna live forever and uh what keeps them living is basically sort of this like google type search engine it's like this voice voice uh computer voice that like gives them all this information they can ask it all these questions and it helps uh provide them with uh, all this information and, and helps uh, supply them in some way with uh, being able to 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 carry on forever, but they're pretty much bored because they're going to live forever. And actually, the idea of of death is like quite exciting to a, a lot of them. So those are the Eternals. Then there's the Mortals, who are the Brutals, and they live in sort of this just like almost like post-apocalyptic uh, setting. Killing is nothing to them. And then there's there's actually like uh, there's these uh, brutal exterminator. They are uh, sort of even more savage. And so they kind of like kill other brutals, other, you know, people that, are, you know, and basically this is like the science fiction of where you have the rich and the poor, you know, the social commentary here. There's this really weird rock formation that floats in the air that has this voice speaking and it goes by the name of Zardas. Well, it, uh, it takes uh, crops from the brutals and they're basically paying tribute to these immortal beings the eternals but it it supplies them with guns so it weirdly spits out all these guns that they use to kill they have the 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 exterminators used to kill some of the other brutals it's it's pretty wacky but anyway sean connery is one of the the exterminators he gets on board this weird rock formation spaceship and ultimately kills the guy who's the voice of zardos and he ends up going into the vortex, which is the world that the Eternals live in. And immediately they're fascinated with him. Some people like him and some people don't. But they have, all, you come to find out, they have all these powers like mind control. They immediately sort of make him their like servant. And so he's kind of like the servant to this one main, one of the main people that are higher up in this world. And then there's another woman who's higher up and she kind of wants him dead. Um, and then there's another higher up that kind of wants to experiment on him because they're finding out that he's smarter than they thought for like, you know, 
one of these people that lives, you know, in this sort of savage land. Sean Connery comes to find out the idea for the Zardos was from the readings of the Wizard of Oz. Like, um, and so actually Zardos is taken, like, if it's take, it takes part of Wizard and part of Oz. And that's what he named his being after and the same thing is like he was just a man behind the rock formation he was doing the voice and making all these people realize that he was this big mythical creature when he was just a man who was able to be killed by Sean Connery so this kind of angers Sean Connery Uh, a bunch of weird stuff kind of happens the immortals a lot of them want death so there's this big brutal kill scene that happens eventually Sean Connery ends up with one of the immortals who then becomes mortal And the last three or four minutes of this movie is just kind of weird. It's like them having a kid and this sort of like time lapse of them growing older and slowly turning into bones. The movie is very weird. The studio kind of thought the movie was so incoherent that they made John Borman shoot this very strange guy who plays Zardos narrating what the whole movie is about. And to be honest, without that intro for me, I don't know that I would be able to like kind of like get everything that's happening there's still some things that i'm not exactly sure what the hell is going on but i'll say this uh it's crazy to me that this movie was made for like it was uh, again a low budget movie made for like a million and a half dollars even for 1974 i find it hard to believe because it's there's so many visual there's so much production design it really is like kind of a feast for the eyes even if you know can come off as like overindulgent of a director um, he certainly creates this like fascinating visual world. And to me, uh, all the way down to like the costumes, uh, uh, you know, Sean Connery wearing basically like what looks like sort of like red diapers and like strange cloth overalls. Um, just YouTube the, the trailer for this. If the trailer for this turns you off, you probably definitely aren't going to be down for the one hour and 40 minute ride. But if the trailer even excites you in the least bit, I can guarantee that uh, you're going to you're going to really have a good time. It sounds like such an involved movie, but just really out there. And I would really, I would, I would really want to investigate this one. And if you're, if you're a super fan of movie, I'm, I'm sorry if I've totally butchered that uh, presentation of what's going on, but it's, man, it was, I just didn't know if I could be able really like shortly condense like what is happening. It sounds like there's a lot going on. I was not seeing the Wizard of Oz angle coming well, coming out. One, of it's that. it's certain it's definitely one of those movies where like everything has its own name, like the it's, vortex, the immortals, the tabernacle, like everything's got it's, its own world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's so, cool though. Yeah, it's it's definitely original. I mean, it's it, it's <laughs> not all the way coherent. I don't think, and but it's it's definitely original. So your pick of the week was also a Burt Reynolds movie. Yes, it was. It's called The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. And if possible, please don't be immediately put off by the title because saying whorehouse is just as cringeworthy now as it was when this movie came out in 1982. Now, I grew up with the music from this movie star, Dolly Parton. She plays a LaGrange, Texas madam who runs a brothel nicknamed The Chicken Ranch. Nicknamed because when visitors couldn't afford to pay for services, they'd trade up for one live chicken. Burt Reynolds plays the town sheriff who, along with much of the Texas town, the Uh, the chicken ranch is in, defends the brothel, and supports its existence in the community. You throw in a muckraking, slanderous TV journalist, played by Dom DeLuise, 
looking to expose the chicken ranch to the masses. And well, you've got a recipe for a musical comedy about puritanical beliefs of decency versus the fight for prostitution not to be persecuted. The movie doesn't much linger on the legal side of this. It's more about how a media outlet wages war on a lady-owned business which legally employs all these tax-paying, giving-back-to-the-community ladies with hearts of gold who are just doing their job. I know musicals can sometimes be an immediate turnoff for some folks, but this genre, you know, still does persist today, like La La Land or Mamma Mia or what have you. The list goes on. I love theater, musicals, live action, anything. I'm generally a fan. Best Little Whorehouse ended up being the fourth highest grossing musical comedy in the 80s, and it remains hovering around number 18 for highest grossing musical films since 74. And in the summer of 82, it was the movie that knocked E.T. out of the number one spot. It was after a month, but still. The draw to this movie is the on-screen chemistry between Parton and Reynolds. The film adaptation of the Best Little Whorehouse stage play was very much a vehicle for both stars. Uh, Like in the play, the town sheriff and the chicken ranch madam had an affair many years prior to the main point of this story. And in the film version, they've had this ongoing secret relationship for many years, but are unable to admit how in love they truly are with each other. And I've always found their chemistry in this movie to be so intoxicating, which is kind of ironic because there were all these rumors that... Bert and Dolly did not get along during filming. And if that's true, this movie is definitely proof of how pro both these performers have always been because it really does not come through on screen at all. If you're a fan of Dolly Parton, I'm sure you know this movie. There's a shortened version of her epic heartstopper, I Will Always Love You, that pops up towards the end and can certainly jerk some tears as it does anytime it comes on. But whenever the group rendition of Parton's Hard Candy Christmas is sung as an ensemble with all of the chicken ranch women as they're moving out of the brothel after being closed, I ugly cry, like Claire Dane-style ugly cry. It's bad. But it's a beautiful scene. There were a handful of other songs uh, that were either written by Dolly or were in the original stage production that were cut out of the theatrical release due to time. It kind of makes me want to see the stage production of this if it were ever to come back around. But one of the most heartbreaking things about the story of the Chicken Ranch is that only with Hollywood's finessing, this is a true story. Even the part about trading services for chickens, that actually happened. There really was a chicken ranch boarding house brothel that was accepted by a town and allowed to operate. In reality, though, the madam in charge doubled for a police informant by narking on anyone who came through the house and bragged about any crimes that they had committed. They were all law-abiding, tax-paying citizens who contributed to the community and even donated to local community organizations. And in the end... It really was a TV journalist who made a giant public stink, which resulted in the closing of the chicken ranch. And about 25 years later, that journalist admitted he was put up to it by the office of the Texas Attorney General, and it was just this personal targeting of the boarding house because he just didn't like what was going on down there. But they never proved that anything illegal was actually happening at the chicken ranch. Needless to say, the Hollywood happy ending to Best Little Whorehouse was not the actual reality. This movie, for me, is a charming romantic comedy. We all know I'm a sucker for that. Um, But it does have a heartbreaking truth behind it. 
even how Reynolds's sheriff character goes to meet with the state's governor in the movie, the real-life sheriff tried to do the same thing, except in reality, the governor refused to meet with him. Overall, I find this movie to be very woman-positive, sex-positive, all throughout. Personally, I don't think you need to like musicals to be into this movie. And even with the territory that Best Little Whorehouse dives into, it still remains very cute and, and fun to me. I'm also really charmed by Dolly Parton, who has a lot of great lines in this movie. Justin, you've probably seen this, right? I I think your wife, Mary, revisited this and had a good time with it. Yeah, this is one I saw much later in life because uh, I... When I was a kid, I, I grew up on country music and I enjoyed Dolly Parton's music. But early in my childhood, I saw the movie Rhinestone, which I didn't like at all. <laughs> yeah. And then I kind of like Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was like a movie that I always thought that they were like hand in hand. They came out around the same time and yeah. were both musicals. And so I really didn't ever give uh, Best Little Whorehouse like a, a look until like probably like well after high school. No, um, but but much much better film than Rhinestone. I'm mean, not not to knock Rhinestone, but it's you know it, Dolly Parton's still charming in anything she does. She is, she is, and she <laughs> she makes up for the woodenness of Sylvester Stallone, who really great in some movies, but man, not so. Yeah, Rhinestone, Rhinestone is something else. It's 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 unique. I mean, it's unique to watch it now, but yes. growing up when I was a kid, it was like, man, this is not for me. <laughs> yeah, Best Little Whorehouse is not Rhinestone. Well, uh, thanks for that pick of the week. Of course, and um. Nice tie-in, Burt Reynolds. Yeah, you're. I cannot wait to watch Zardoz. Well, I got it right there for you. I take take it home with you. We'll tonight. see if I can manage to watch yeah. it tonight. Let's uh, keep on trucking. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. So this Murray moment was almost about the time Billy was part of a terribly unfunny SNL skit called Deliverance 2, which actually did feature Burt Reynolds. It's in season five if you want to check it out, but I just couldn't bring myself to talk about its offensiveness, especially after coming across this little story out of St. Croix Falls, Wisconsin, and a special pop-in at Eric's Canoe and Kayak Rental off the beautifully scenic St. Croix River. We've all heard about Billy's karaoke sessions, how he's a welcomed party crasher, was in a stranger's wedding photo, even stealing somebody's french fry. There's a billion stories out there. Hell, there's even a documentary called The Bill Murray Stories. But here's one I hadn't heard, and I was lucky enough to talk to the man who had his own personal Murray moment back in 2009. Owner of Eric's Canoe and Kayak Rental, Eric Flynn, was just living his life, grabbing some things at the local Walmart, planning to head back to home base as this was in the middle of the busy river season, just about mid-June. He got a text from one of his employees back at the kayak rental that just said, Bill's here. Not really understanding who Bill was, Eric responded something like, great, 
get Bill suited up and ready to go, we'll take care of him. A proper response from a 18-year veteran of the canoeing customer service industry. But he didn't really understand who Bill was. No, you don't understand. Bill Murray is here, is the response text he got back. Eric told me that he just dropped his groceries right there and ran as quickly as he could out of the store, telling the kid on the other end of the text, I'll be right there. Now, Eric's fairly certain it was Bill's wife at the time who made the reservation, so she must have really not made a big deal about it. Honestly, I'm surprised there was a reservation at all. Billy arrived with a few of his younger kids and Mike Veck, co-owner of the St. Paul Saints, a team for which Billy is also a silent partner. Eric said Billy was standoffish at first, and what kind of you would imagine a celebrity would be like when they're putting their safety and transport into the hands of a stranger with a van and canoes. Eric was in charge of transporting the Murray crew to the river access point, then picking them up later about eight miles down the St. Croix River. If you've ever been in a canoe or kayak transport van, generally you spend a good amount of time in there. You chatted up with whomever's driving or other folks in the van. Eric was lucky enough to do just that. He said Billy finally loosened up after just a short amount of time. They talked baseball, movies, Billy even asked him about the canoe business, and so on. For Eric, who was totally a Bill Murray fan, he said he ended up being just like any other normal guy. He said, He's a smartass, no doubt about that, but he's really intelligent and witty. I kind of forgot he was a famous person, though. He said Billy was a typical dad, kind of chasing after his teen kids. One in particular was giving him trouble that day specifically. Being a typical teenager, Eric said. It may have seemed like Billy and Mike Veck were more of the outdoorsy kind and kind of into the canoe trip more than Billy's kids. Another gem I mind out of our conversation was Eric recounting an example of just how much of a smartass Billy can be. So the van's heading into the St. Croix Park and had to check in with the teen girls who are running the booth at the park entrance. Eric does this multiple times a day. He knows these girls, but today was different. From the van window, Eric says to them, you know who this guy is? And gestures back to Billy. The girls are like, yeah, sure. Yeah, you look really familiar. And Billy extends his hand and says, hi, I'm Eddie Murphy. And the girls are like, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, you're Eddie Murphy. And you better believe that Eric got a photo out of this experience, too. As his favorite Billy movie is What About Bob, he grabbed an orange life vest and asked Billy to wear it as Bob did in the movie. Billy was pleased to oblige. And this photo is perfect for any Bill Murray fan. Eric never tires of talking about this experience. And since this is a widely known story around the Wisconsin area, people ask him about it all the time. He said that one of the coolest things, though, is running into people with their own Murray moments. He even told me that he met the lady who had her french fry stolen by Billy while saying, no one's ever going to believe you. So I guess this story gives me hope that maybe I'll run into Billy one day. And this story in particular, out in the woods and running into Bill Murray, well, man, that kind of sounds like a dream. So... Thanks, Eric, for sharing your experience with me. I really appreciate it. And you better believe if I'm up in the St. Croix Falls area, I'm stopping by your kayak rental. Or hey, even better, Bill, if you're listening, you want to go back to Eric's and take a canoe trip with me sometime? You know, I can't help to put it out there, right? I mean, what can that hurt? Nice work connecting a canoe trip to <laughs> deliverance. <laughs> yeah. That was a good one. And that was that was more of like a story story too. Yeah. Like, you know. 
Yeah. So did you talk to the guy? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I found I didn't. I, I didn't I found one article I tried to find a little bit more but I could only find like one piece that was written in a local uh, a local write-up on it and then I so was where like, did you talk to him were you at the canoe place or no I just oh, like oh. I, I found the article and I couldn't find anything more so I'm like I don't I can just call the I can just call this guy can oh, okay. I so I just gave him a call and yeah he just talked to me nice no. Did you do that this week or was this a while back? Uh, no, this was like last week. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It was, he was way, really nice. Way to go the extra mile on this marine moment. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't go all the way to Wisconsin. That would have been well, a few extra miles. Well, that's why I was like, I was confused for a second. I didn't know if like you <laughs> meant like this was back when you went, went up there on one tri- time. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I just, I just called Eric. Wow. Nice. Yeah. Good uh, investigative journalism i you know i clock some investigative time yeah in my day well that's your murray moments um was there anything else that we wanted to wrap up with deliverance oh one fun fact that we left out so the other legendary scene with the the banjo picking scene with ronnie cox and the kid right yeah one thing that is pretty cool, and, and it's not, I think it was a fact that was hidden when the movie came yeah. out, but not so much now, is that the kid that's playing the banjo with Ronnie Cox, those are not his arms. He's but not actually he's playing He's not that. actually playing it. <laughs> um, another fun fact about that guy is that yeah. he uh, was also used in Big Fish much later, Tim Burton's Big Fish. Was he? As a b- quick banjo playing guy. Huh. And that. So wait, the hands or the the kid, the, the, the actor? kid that's in the actor that's in Deliverance, yeah, as a adult, you know. And he was actually playing banjo. I don't think you. I don't know if he was actually playing in Big Fish, but he is playing a banjo in Big Fish. Hmm. Um, but Tim Burton, I think, like liked. Yeah. He was like one of those weird Tim Burton things. Like I'm gonna find track down the guy that <laughs> was in this movie like a million years ago and put him in like a 30 second clip of my movie. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. But. uh yeah, I guess I guess yeah, including that guy, a lot of the a lot of the extras or, you know, people that are in the movies outside of the four main actors were locals of the area. The the dance that the old man does that During was improvised. Banjos, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's um it's pretty unique. Like it's 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 cool that they that they went for like a real authentic look. Yeah. It, it definitely paid off. Well, uh we hope you enjoyed you know, we we went we went into some darker moments in this podcast, but we hope you enjoyed. You don't Our, watch Deliverance with the hope of right coming out of it feeling great about life. right, right? Yeah, we yeah we went into some darker elements with this episode, but but we hope it was worth it. Oh, um, one more fun fact. Yeah, you know the hand that come the final the final scene of uh of the movie is a hand coming up out of the yeah. water, which is like the water is supposed to like represent subconscious and this hand is you know what's always going to plague these men like is the it's body body's going to be found up, uh, yeah yeah that hand is 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 a hand but it's a hand with a rubber glove yeah. on it with water inside. and that was uh, uh That's why it looks so weird john borman does that same thing in zardoz with uh sean connor it's but it's early in the movie his hand pops up out of a thing and then he pops mm-hmm. up out but um, and excalibur too yeah yeah and uh Many are uh, 
Brian De Palma said uh, the end of Carrie was an homage to That's Deliverance. That's right, yeah. yeah. And they used it, sort of used it in Friday the 13th, kind of borrowed only yeah. the whole body comes out. but Deliverance, um, yeah. just influencing yeah. so much. Great film. Yeah. So we figured uh, to lighten things up a little bit, we're coming out of Deliverance. Uh, the furthest away yeah, yeah. that we could probably we, we get. We need to lighten it up for the next episode. <laughs> so next episode... Uh, we're doing and and I can't believe we haven't done the Eddie Murphy movie. Uh, How many times have we now. talked about? Yeah, we've Eddie talked Murphy. about Eddie Murphy so many times. Yeah. Uh, so I'm so happy we're doing and this is my favorite Eddie Murphy movie. Uh, next episode we're doing uh, Coming to America, which I think is like yeah. a classic comedy, John Landis comedy, uh, one of Eddie Murphy's best. Um, you first, and I have yeah. talked about doing yeah. this for a second, just getting so, around to it. Uh, so much to talk about with Coming to America, so that'll be. Um, next episode that movie there's so much creativity thrown into that movie it's it's crazy i can't i can't wait to dive into it it's gonna be a fun one yeah if you want to uh contact us about anything give us your thoughts on deliverance you know tell us we're we're completely uh crazy about (laughs) our our discussions you can reach us at don't push podcast at gmail.com um we're pretty active on instagram don't push podcast Pretty active on Facebook. Don't push boss podcast. We're also on Twitter. I'm trying. Yeah, still trying to keep up. I with appreciate that Twitter. it. And then um, uh, you can always go to our website, don'tpushbosspodcast.com. If you listen to us on iTunes and you feel it worthy, give us a good rating. Leave a comment. It always helps. We love know, knowing that you're listening. That you like it. Don't like it. Anything. Listening. Yeah. So uh, yeah, thanks so much. And um, until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reaper. Thanks for listening. Thank you.